Consecration and Sacrilege in Early Rabbinic Judaism by Avram R. Shannon. Introduction. One of the distinctive elements of the Restoration is the Law of Consecration. We often identify this law as one of the highest given as part of the Restoration. We find, however, that consecration is not just a modern concept, but has its roots in the Lord's covenant path in every dispensation, including the Sinai Covenant and the Law of Moses. The word consecrate means to make holy. The King James translation of the Hebrew Bible uses the word holy to translate words coming from the triliteral root kadash. The core concept of this Hebrew root is to be set apart or dedicated, with the primary subject of that dedication being the God of Israel. The achievement of holiness was one of the primary goals of the Sinai Covenant and the Law of Moses. In his introduction to the Law in Exodus, the Lord promises Israel, quote, Now therefore, if you obey my voice indeed, and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine, and ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and an holy nation. Close quote. In Leviticus, the Lord prefaces commands to Israel with the commandment, quote, Ye shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Close quote. The Lord's covenants were designed to push Israel to greater consecration and separation from the things of the world. Within the Bible, notions of holiness are inherently tied together with notions of the temple and the ordinances practiced therein. According to the scriptures, both people and things can be made holy, and a person or object set apart as holy can be made unholy or desecrated. The misuse of sacred objects in non-set-apart contexts is known as sacrilege and is a violation of God's privileges. Consecration and sacrilege are two sides of the same coin. Both the Old Testament and later rabbinic literature connect the consecration and sacrilege with a violation of God's covenant path. The rabbinic sages were articulate thinkers on the law of Moses. An examination of their perspective can make some notions of the law clearer, not from the biblical perspective, but also from a Latter-day Saint perspective. This paper explores the biblical and rabbinic laws of consecration to come to a clearer picture of the ancient background for Latter-day Saint consecration. In this space, this article focuses on the Bible and the Mishnah, the earliest collection of rabbinic law, and does not address the two Talmuds, the Jerusalem and the Babylonian. Consecration Holiness in the Bible The impulse towards holiness is behind the building of the tabernacle and the giving of the temple and sacrificial ordinances. Although Exodus 19 makes it clear the Lord intended all Israel to be holy, he set apart certain spaces that the Lord intended all Israel to be um, part of, to teach the covenant what holiness means. In the world of the Old Testament, these holy things included the Aaronic priests and the temple with its furniture. In Exodus 28.41, as part of the commands regulating the creation of the ancient tabernacle, the Lord commands Moses to make special clothing for Aaron and his sons. Moses then commanded to, quote, Put them upon Aaron thy brother and his sons with him, and, shall, and thou shalt anoint them and consecrate them and sanctify them, that they may minister unto me in the priest's office. The consecration of Aaron and his sons, as described in Exodus 29, turns them into holy people. Consecration is also the point of the gold plate affixed to the forehead of the Aaronic high priest, with inscription proclaiming, Sanctified to Yahweh. Aaron and his priestly descendants were made holy and given over to God's service. These Aaronic priests were set apart and, in a sense, belonged to God. In many ways, the process of consecration is the process of transferring ownership of a person or thing back to God. Their sanctification as priests made Aaron and his descendants responsible for holy things that formed ancient temple practice. They also became responsible for teaching Israel holiness and protecting holy things from unholiness. In Leviticus 10, 11, um, 10 and 11, 
The Lord tells Aaron and his sons to avoid unholiness, quote, that ye may put difference between unholy and holy, between unclean and clean, and that ye may teach the children of Israel all the statutes which the Lord has spoken unto them by the hand of Moses. Priests were responsible for making the distinction between holy and unholy and for passing the distinction on to Israel. In fact, according to a passage in Numbers, quote, And the Lord said unto Aaron, Thou and thy sons and thy father's house with thee shall bear the iniquity of the sanctuary. Thou and thy sons with thee shall bear the iniquity of your priesthood. Iniquity in this passage likely refers to the responsibility for ensuring the sanctity of the priesthood and the temple with its accoutrements. Aaron and his ancestral house were to serve as mediators between the profane and the sacred. According to the same passage in Numbers, the priests, along with other members of the tribe of Levi, were to, quote, keep the charge of the sanctuary and the charge of the altar, that there be no wrath any more upon the children of Israel, close quote. After placing the responsibility of keeping the temple holy on the priests, Numbers 18 proceeds to discuss the responsibilities and privileges that were due the priests. The privileges include various parts of sacrificial offerings. They also include the tithes of the first fruits, which is a privilege of priests because they did not possess any inheritance of land in Israel. In addition to these food items, the Lord also gave the Aaronic priests responsibility for the property that had been devoted or pledged to God. These were holy according to Leviticus 27, 28-30. As in this dispensation, agents of the Old Testament Aaronic priesthood were responsible for the management of the property dedicated to the Lord. The laws concerning items dedicated to God were vital for the understanding of consecration, ancient and modern. The Hebrew verb referring to the devotion of items to God in Leviticus 27 is haram, a verb that has a core meaning of to vote, devote, excuse me, or place under a ban. It is also, however, the verb used when discussing the total destruction of Canaanite cities and property. In the cases of Leviticus and the destruction of the Canaanites, the core concept remains the same, however. The person dedicating gives possession to God. According to Leviticus 27.29, once this property is handed over to God, it cannot be redeemed or bought back. There are places in the Bible, in the King James Version, where things that have been devoted in this fashion are described as cursed or accursed, such as Joshua 7.1 or Isaiah 34.5. These translations are unfortunate because the problem with the misuse of consecrated items is not their negative nature. It is rather these items have been devoted to God, and the use retention of these items is a misuse of his property. The book of Joshua tells the story of Achan, who was punished for because he took treasures from donations. It is not the taking that is the most problematic part of the story. Achan's sin is, like Ananias and Sapphira's in the New Testament, holding back from God what is rightfully his. After the sacrilege, after it was sanctified or made, and made holy, it becomes subject to specific rules for handling and use. The laws governing sacrilege deal with questions about how one should interact with holy objects and people. Sacrilege is especially concerned with the various ways that holy objects can be misused. In addition to the practical concerns of interacting with, with, in the, with sacred objects and people, the law of sacrilege has a covenantal aspect. From a biblical perspective, it is just as possible to misuse commandments and covenants as it is to misuse sanctified objects. Indeed, misusing temple objects and misusing the Lord's blessings are both violations of the laws against sacrilege because they are misuse of God's property. As noted, the process of consecration in the biblical text is, at its core, a transfer of ownership, or perhaps more correctly, a movement object from Panny's ownership back to God's ownership. Sacrilege is fundamentally the misuse of things that properly belong to God. 
the early rabbinic sages, the rabbis, called sacrilege me'ilah. Like so many rabbinic concepts, me'ilah has its root in the Hebrew Bible. Its root in Hebrew, ma'al, refers to betrayal or turning aside. It also has a transferred meaning referring especially to covenant betrayal. This meaning is evident in one of the many marriage laws in the Law of Moses, which begins with, quote, if a man's wife goes aside and commit a trespass against him, close quote. The King James Version translates me'ilah as commit a trespass against him and refers to the breaking of covenant loyalty. In his magisterial commentary on Leviticus, Jacob Milgram makes it clear that the biblical law of sacrilege applies not just to manipulation and misuse of various aspects of the cult, but also betrayal of a covenant loyalty owed to God. He notes that this kind of forbidden activity falls into, quote, two major categories, the sacrilege against sagta, meaning the holy temple things, and the violation of the covenant oath, close quote. Milgram points out the very important fact about the biblical law of sacrilege. His two forbidden activities actually stem from the same place. They are both essentially violations of Israel's covenant relationship with the Lord. They're infringements of the Lord's attempt to show Israel what holiness means. Thus, in ancient Israel, notions of consecration, sanctification, and sacrilege were closely tied to the proper relationship that Israel was to have with God. It was through this process that Israel was to fulfill its covenant mission to become a holy nation and a kingdom of priests. Consecration and sacrilege in early rabbinic literature. Like most we find in the Law of Moses and the Sinai Covenant, the Rabbinic Sages thought closely about the implications of the Law of Consecration and its um, consequences. The Mishnah, the early Rabbinic Law Code, is divided into various tractates arranged topically. A number of tractates are dedicated to the discussion of the process of consecrating and sanctifying property, as well as the circumstances for the misuse of that property. These tractates are um, part of the various orders in the Mishnah. Tractate Nedarim, in the order governing laws pursuing women, covers the making and annulling of vows and statements of consecration and sanctification of property. Tractate Arachin deals with, con- deals with consecrated property designed to support the building of the temple. Arachin is part of Kodashim, the Mishnaic order governing holy or sanctified things and the temple. Also part of Kodashim, Tractate Me'elah deals with sacrilege or the misuse of sacred objects. The rabbinic laws about consecration place a heavy emphasis on the verbal part of sanctification, because the sages took consecration very seriously. They did not want to end up where somebody accidentally gave um, their goods over to God, or worse, they gave their goods and they changed their mind. Mishnah Erechin 3.5 warns, quote, Thus we find that one that speaks with his mouth has a more stringent punishment than one who performs an act. We further find that the decree of judgment sealed was not sealed against our ancestors in the desert, except on the cause of evil speaking. As is written, they have tempted these ten times. Quote. Speaking is emphasized there because, for the sages, it is in the speaking of the dedication that the transfers of ownership move from Israelites to God. Similar ideas are likely behind these prohibitions against swearing in Matthew 5, 34-37. Connected to the idea of vows as transference, Mishnah Nadarim begins with a reminder that it is not possible to get out of vows of consecration on purely semantic grounds. Quote, All synonyms for vows count as vows. Likewise, all dedications count as dedications. Those for oaths count as oaths, and those for Nazarite count as Nazarite vows. Close quote. The Mishnah then proceeds to list various colloquial synonyms that qualify as the verbal aspect of consecration. Quote, Enters into companion, konam, konach, konatz. Indeed, these are synonyms for korban, the term for an offering. Cherech, herech, heref. Indeed, these are synonyms for cherem, 
the term for something that could be not redeemed. Nazik, Nazik, Pazik, and the, indeed, these are for a Nazarite vow. Shevutah, Shekuka, Nadar Bemutah, indeed, these are for Shevutah, the term for an oath. Close quote. Again, this Mishnaic passage illustrates the importance of speech from a rabbinic perspective and the desire to make clear what, what keeps speech from the realm of the individual and what passes it over to God. Using the Hebrew equivalent of substituting gosh for God does not clear the obligation of incurred for making vows of consecration. In fact, Mishnah Nenarim 2.5 discusses what happens when someone makes a vow of consecration, but then says that he or she has ascribed different meanings to the words and the words votive meanings. Rabbi Meir essentially suggests a policy wherein as long as a person makes the claim, does not attempt to get a formal annulment of his or her vow from the authorities, those authorities let it slide. If the person who makes the vow tries to get it annulled, then the person faces the consequences of a frivolous oath, and the vow is interpreted strictly. The Mishnah, however, offers an opinion from Rabbi Meir. It says, quote, They open for them a door for repentance from another place and teach them in order they may not retreat matters lightly of vows. Close quote. The phrase, open a door for repentance, is a rabbinic expression meaning that it is possible to annul a vow. Both Rabbi Meir and the Mishnah agree that vows are of utmost importance, but they disagree on the best way to encourage that importance. Consecration and oaths were of such importance to the sages because they were conscious of the dangers of misusing the privileges that belonged primarily to God. The discussion in Tractate Me'ilah picks up the other side of consecration and of giving oneself over to God. This tractate discusses what qualifies as sacrilege within the early rabbinic worldview. Much of Me'ilah deals with the rabbinic desire to explore and explain edge cases, and gain discussions about when various sacrifice offerings and dedications qualify as sacrilege. In the fifth chapter, Mishnah Me'ilah picks up the question about what happens when somebody uses property that has been dedicated to the temple. The first verse in this chapter states, quote, The one who has derived even a pruta's benefit from consecrated things even if it has not diminished its value, is guilty of sacrilege. This is the opinion of Rabbi Akiva. Close quote. What the Mishnah calls a pruta was a small copper coin of the lowest value. In other words, if someone uses consecrated property and gains any amount of monetary benefit, that person has misused God's property. The Mishnah then records a slight agreement with Rabbi Akiva's position. Quote, but the sages say... Anything that can be devalued through use only counts as sacrilege if it is actually dis- is disvalued. When it cannot be disvalued as soon as it is derived benefit from his guilty sacrilege. How is this so? If a woman placed a consecrated necklace on her neck or consecrated ring on her hand or drank from a golden cup, as soon as that one derived benefit, it is sacrilege. Close quote. These examples make it clear that the sages do not exclusively view gaining benefit in monetary terms. Wearing consecrated jewelry or drinking from a consecrated cup qualifies benefit and therefore make one as guilty of sacrilege in spite of the fact that there was no monetary gain. The reference to drinking from a golden cup suggests that the sages had in mind the story of Belshazzar from Daniel 5. Belshazzar, the eldest son of the last Babylonian king Nabonidus, brings gold and silver vessels looted from Jerusalem to a party that he is um, throwing. Belshazzar, who is not a father of the God of Israel, uses sanctified vessels for his own benefit. As Daniel 5.4 in the KJV states, they drank wine and praised the gods of gold and of silver, of brass, of iron, of wood, and of stone. Not only was Belshazzar using temple vessels at his party, 
but that this party was put in honor of gods apart from the God of Israel, making it a double offense. The misuse of sacred materials leaves the famous writing on the wall, and according to Daniel 5, this biblical allusion gives the sages precedent for their readings and understanding of sacrilege. Daniel 5 also illustrates that the entire discussion of consecration sacrilege hinges on a question of ownership. In the Bible and subsequent rabbinic literature, consecrated um, property belongs to God. Sacrilege is offensive to God because it uses God's property in ways that are contrary to his will. Idolatry and Sacrilege Because consecration and sacrilege were tied together with notions of holiness and being like God, these ideas are not simply about property. This is evident even in the Daniel passage alluded to by the sages in Mishnah Me'elah 5. In Daniel 5.23 KJV, Daniel accuses Belshazzar, Thou hast lifted up thyself against the Lord of heaven, and they have brought the vessels of his house before thee, and thou, and thy lords, thy wives, and thy concubines, have drunk wine in them, and thou hast praised the gods of silver and gold, of brass, iron, wood, and stone, which see not, nor hear, nor know, and the God in whose hand thy breath is, and whose, all, and whose are all thy ways, hast thou not glorified. Close quote. Belshazzar's crime is not just the use of the vessels for non-sacred purposes, although that is present. His crime is exacerbated because these sacred vessels were used to praise other gods. He doubly committed sacrilege by giving what rightfully belonged to God to others. This can further be seen in, early Jewish, in an examination of the early Jewish laws and idolatry. The early rabbinic sages drew on biblical examples and understood the commandment to have no other gods from Exodus 23 through 6 in connection to the laws of consecration and sacrilege. The Mishnaic definition and exploration of the activities that count as idolatry is found in Mishnah Sanhedrin 7.6 as part of a larger discussion on capital punishment. The law of Moses states that one who commits idolatry is subject to death by stoning. But this statement begs the question, what counts as the commission of idolatry? Mishnah Sanhedrin 7.6 sets forth a list of activities that could count as idolatry. Quote, The one who commits idolatry is liable whether he worships, sacrifices, burns incense, pours out libations, prostrates, receives as a god, or says to it, You are my god. Close quote. According to the Mishnah, each of the original activities qualify as breaking the commandment of idolatry and make one subject to the prescribed penalty of stoning. The Mishnah goes on to describe some other original activities that do not make a person legally guilty of, of idolatry. Quote, But the one who embraces it, kisses, sweeps, sprinkles, washes, anoints, clothes, or shoes an image merely transgresses a negative commandment. Close quote. All of the activities in this list actually involve interacting with the image of a god or deity. The, act of, the acts of embracing, clothing, or washing an image point to a certain physicality involved in interacting with these images. Here, however, the physical interaction with an image is not as great as a crime as something like bowing down to an image. According to the sages, manipulating an image does not qualify as idolatry and does not, make sub does not make one subject to the death penalty. To a modern reader, this looks very strange. But it is the idea of consecration and sacrilege that makes the rabbinic concept of idolatry make sense. Idolatry is a violation of both sacred objects and the covenant oath to only worship the God of Israel. Thus, idolatry satisfies both of Milgram's categories of sacrilege and me'ilah. According to the sages, if an action does not violate the Sinai Covenant and give to other gods privileges that are gods alone, it does not count as idolatry. In fact, 
all of the activities that count as idolatry in Sanhedrin 7.6 are ritual activities that are performed for the, to the God of Israel as part of the temple cults and the law of Moses. For example, sacrifices specified in Exodus 20, 24-26, Leviticus 1-3-9, and numerous other places within the Pentateuch. Sacrifices' frequent references are unsurprising since sacrifice was the ordinary mode of religious worship among both the Israelites and other ancient peoples. Incense burning is discussed in Exodus 31 through 8, where it is called a regular incense offering. That's Leviticus, um, Leviticus 16, 12 through 13, Deuteronomy 33, 10, and many other places describe um, incense burning. These examples are sufficient to show that the rabbinic sages understood idolatry as a kind of sacrilege. Thus, as understood by these ancient Jews, idolatry was defined as performing acts to other gods, ritual acts to other gods, instead of to the God of Israel. It was, building from the biblical definition of sacrilege, a violation of the covenant oil required by Israel. It involved giving those privileges that belonged to Jehovah alone to other gods. Notions of holiness, including notions of sacrilege and consecration, were a vital part of both the biblical law of Moses and the rabbinic interpretation of it. Conclusion The conceptual connection between covenants, commandments, and consecration is not simply a biblical or rabbinic idea. It is at the core of Latter-day Saint notions of consecration and holiness. Like in the Sinai Covenant, the Lord's purpose for his people in the latter days is to make them holy. We are sanctified through covenant commandments that require our absolute loyalty and are promised to not misuse things that the Lord has reserved for himself. In a revelation given to Joseph Smith in 1834, the Lord said, quote, And all the monies that you receive in your stewardships, by improving upon the properties which I have appointed unto you, in houses, or in lands, or in cattle, or in all things save be the holy and sacred writings, which I have done myself for holy and sacred purposes, shall be cast into the treasury as fast as you receive monies, by hundreds, or by fifties, or by twenties, or by tens, or by fives. Close quote. Note here the Lord mentions sacred things that he, quote, reserved to himself for holy and sacred purposes, showing that even in this dispensation, the core notion of consecration is based on the idea that God himself is the owner of consecrated property. This section, and others in the Doctrine and Covenants, refers to the united firm and the physical law of consecration as parts of the Lord's attempt to make us holy. As in the ancient world, the Lord requires his saints to sanctify themselves by giving up their property and helping them materially less, unfortunate, less fortunate. It also applies something like the law of chastity. As with property dedicated to the Lord, the problem with sexual relations outside of marriage is not that sex is bad. The problem is that sex is something that God cares deeply about. So he has guarded it with covenants and protections. As Jeffrey R. Holland expressed it when he was president of Brigham University, quote, Now once again, I know of no one who would, for example, rush into the middle of the sacrament service, grab the linen from the tables, throw the blood the full length of the room, tip the water trays onto the floor, and laughing retreat from the building to await the, an opportunity to do the same thing in the worship service next Sunday. Nor would anyone here violate any other sacramental moments of our lives, those times we constantly claim God's power and by invitation stand with him in privilege and principality. But I wish to stress you this morning, as my third of three reasons to be clean, the sexual union is also, in its own profound way, a very real sacrament of the highest order, a union not only of man and of woman, but a very much the union of that man and woman with God. Close quote. The law of chastity is therefore part and parcel with the law of consecration. And the violation of chastity is a misuse of divine prerogatives, and hence, a kind of sacrilege. 
rather than being an obscure part of the law that Latter-day Saints can safely ignore, the biblical discourse on dedications and sacrilege provides the theoretical underpinning of the Latter-day Saint law of consecration. The rabbinic articulation of the law of consecration illustrates that consecration does not have to be understood only in terms of dedicated property, although that will always be part of it. Instead, the Mishnah illustrates the key notion by consecration in every dispensation. Consecration literally means to make something or someone holy and fundamentally involves transferring ownership to God. Sacrilege is the misuse of God's property and privileges and is treated by God as such. On the other hand, as we consecrate our behavior and property to the Lord, we want to use those consecrated items in ways that he himself would use them, including sharing them with the poor and the needy. Sacrilege and consecration are therefore two sides of that same coin of our process of becoming like God. Thank you very much.